Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Uh, welcome one and all back to the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Chris Sinzak, your host. I'm with my co-host Aaron Camaro. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have some fun tonight. We're going to talk early Megadeth and Metallica. That's right. And uh, we got the perfect guest in to uh, talk about the early days of both both of those bands. We've got uh, Bill Hale on the line. And Bill is a rock photographer who has put out books on both bands, most recently the new book on Megadeth. Bill, how are you doing this evening? I'm just fine, guys. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. Bill's calling us from the great state of Hawaii. You done any surfing <laughs> lately, Bill? Uh, no, I, I, not really. I try to get out, you know... Because of my schedule and stuff, I'm in my office, uh, you know, doing books and stuff like that. I get out once, like once a week uh, on Sunday to hang at the beach. So, gotcha. Can you imagine that out on the beach? You'd be like, "Whoa, look at that metalhead out there on that wave, <laughs> <laughs> out there doing an air guitar solo while you're hanging ten. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know who's gonna hang at the beach. Funny story, really quick, is because uh, Dave Murray from Iron Maiden lives on Maui. Right? Oh, yeah. right, and so when they start the tour, they always pick them up. And what they do, and when they start the tour and end the tour, they they park the Ed Force One at Honolulu Airport. And they take up a hotel room for a couple of days. You bunch of all these uh, English Armenian people running around town. It's kind of crazy. Well, man, I just want to tell you off the bat, just to, just to get it out of the way, your books kick ass, man. I love oh, the pictures you, in them. I mean, it's just a it's a picture in time to see, you know, Megadeth and Metallica in their early stages, and it's just amazing. I love it. Yeah, I, I definitely would have to agree. The new book, Megadeth, Another Time, A Different Place, um, how's the response been on that one so far? It's been good. Uh, the, there's, um, but, uh, Megadeth's one of those bands, um, when magazines like Ripped and uh, Cream Metal Specials came out, they got a lot of publicity of them, and then all those photographers, well, I don't want to mention names, but they like uh, big backdrops and hairspray and stuff, so right. Dave got caught up in that uh, syndrome a little bit, and my book, Straight from the Hip, you know, no fluff. I mean, I've been photographing Mustaine since uh, Metallica in 82, right? Mm -hmm. So we had this report, and I kind of actually broke Dave into all this, uh, you know, because he hates photographers, he hates, you know, he still does, and he hates photographs, and I was just lucky enough we had a good report going where uh, he'd let me, you know, uh, do what I do all the time and stuff. And so uh, I had one response from an old friend of mine whose girlfriend said, there's no cute pictures of Dave. I'm going like, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a heavy metal book, you know, there's no, you know, no cute pictures of Dave, but there, you know, some serious shots. And thanks to you. And, and the other thing is most people kind of get it. Megadeth mm -hmm. uh, fans are, are very fickle one way or the other, you know, and they're very vocal about Megadeth. And so I had a couple of responses that they didn't like it or whatever, but if you get it and you understand what's happening in it, it's, it's golden. It's really cool. Yeah, that's the thing about it too. It's the it's not the Kip Winger book, you know. We're not looking for we're not looking <laughs> yeah. for the pretty pose, you know. And and your photographs and it shows through your work that your stuff is really natural. Yeah, that's what uh you know. I'm a big fan of rock photography since I was a kid, you know. And I studied like uh, Baron Woman and Jim Marshall and all those photographers, and they didn't have all those 
glamorous stuff. It's really right to get to the point of the photogra- photograph and stuff. And, and back in the film days, right, when you're, especially when I was a kid, you had too much money. So two rolls of film for a concert, you had to make sure you got every shot counted. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things. It's kind of cool. Thanks. An interesting thing happened uh, where you, the first time you came in contact with Metallica for Metal Rendezvous magazine out of San Francisco. And um, what was. That's a great name, by the way. The first time I heard that, Metal Rendezvous, <laughs> I thought, this is the coolest dating service ever. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and it was, I think we nicked it off that stupid Crocus album. It was in between. We came with a name, and also we found out Crocus had that same name, but we kept it anyway. Oh, yeah, that's cool. right. That's right. <laughs> so you were at that for a while, so you got to photograph and hang out and spend time with some really cool bands. Well, it, you know, uh, I was just fortunate. Uh, the magazine, you know, my buddy John Stranowski and I were just very fortunate to be in, in, at that place at that time. And it's just like uh, we... You know, grew kids in the 70s, right? We saw, you know, I already saw Juice Priest and Thin Lizzy and, you know, UFO and Nazareth, all those, you know, uh, bass bands. And mm-hmm. then it would just, just happened to be at that, that time. You know, it was Ron Quintana from Metalmania and stuff. And then uh, Brian Segel from, uh, you know, South uh, in LA. We just all happened to be at that same place at the same time. And then here comes Lars from Tenmark out of the blue kind of thing, you know. And uh, Lars met all the major players in the California scene within a couple of weeks, which is, he just had that, that gift, I guess. And, uh, he knew Quintana and he met, you know, hung out with him a little bit. He met my editor, Stranansky. And then we just, you know, and then we, you actually heard like, right, uh, hit the lights. And it's, uh, as it, it, it practice, they'd go to McGovern's, uh, house and, and Lars would call up, Hey, listen to this, put the phone on the ground and Lars would call it off and can it off. And we'd hear the, the songs before they got, you know, released or anything like that. That was kind of cool. And so, yeah, we've been with the band, just before, you know, probably before Lark actually started it. So wow, from the very before the very beginning, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but Lars had that. He just had that gift. I mean, he said he knew Slagle. He met Bob Nalbadian. He you know hung out in San Francisco and met uh, your Uncle Tana. He met us. And he just had that gift. You know, and he still has that that gift of finding those people to work with. Now I'm sure Metallica was was very good to watch to begin with when they had the original lineup. But would you agree that it seems like they probably became more of a force when Cliff joined the group? Would you agree with that? Exactly. Um, in doing uh, my first book, Metallica: The Club Days, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you had to go through and you scan all the negatives. You have to like think of a, a concept and just bring back those memories. And I remember I knew Cliff. I saw Cliff in Trauma. I, I knew Cliff for a while and stuff. And uh, the minute they stepped on stage, it was like something to get. But he did that bass solo, right? Yeah. And that was, that was really cool. And then Lars jumped in and finished it off. And that at that point. I knew that band was like the most dangerous band in the world. I would have took Metallica with Stain and Burton and put it against Black Sabbath from 72 or wow. Deep Purple from like 71 or even Zeppelin. That, they were that good. <laughs> it was, it was, and everybody in, in that club at the Stone, both shows like knew it. It was like, you know, the band got on, everybody shut the hell fuck up and just like watch this, this machine going on. So it was really cool. That's awesome. And the, uh, the, the stories about... Uh, the band being called Alcoholica, did they really live up to that title back in those days? We all drank, though. You know, it, was, uh, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't, uh, you know, somehow, um, yeah, we all kind of drank, you know, whatever we could afford. I think at first, no one had many, much money, so like Pepner Schnapps and Budweiser or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but as, you know, Metallica starts going into Europe and stuff, and then, you know, then 
those vices take over even more. Yeah. And so, and you have nothing to, you know, um, like James had no parents kind of thing. Cause he, you know, living out on for a while and it was just, you know, those things take over <laughs> and yeah, they were, but we all drank. It was right. one of those things. Alcoholica. I'll always love that. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> so what we're actually doing today, we're, we're talking to Bill and we're hanging out, we're having a good time, but we're going to play some music too. And what we've done is we've kind of set it up where we're each going to pick songs. And today's show is about early Megadeth and early Metallica. And Chris, the shortest straw has been drawn for you, my friend. You get to go first. So you're going to be picking off of Kill 'Em All. What's your first choice of the night? My first choice of the night is my favorite Metallica song of all time. And because it has a little bit of everything, it's got the, the thrash, it's got the speed, and it's got one killer guitar solo. So off of Kill 'Em All, the debut album, I'm going to go with Four Horsemen.
Yeah, Four Horsemen, killer song. I love that one. Bill, you got any cool stories about the early days of Metallica? Is there anything that maybe 
Something that you know that you don't think most Metallica fans realize. Something that you can break out for us. Well, you know, now, you know, 30 years later, and then with the Big Four, and then Dave rejoining them a couple times, I think, um, I think everybody, especially the last, like, three years, really understood how much Mustaine contributed to the early Metallica sound and, and mm-hmm. the early Metallica, uh, you know, isms or whatever. When I first saw them, James was so shy. I mean, he wouldn't introduce the songs. And Dave and would have to go, you know, and introduce all the songs. And mm-hmm. as... Um, the band progressed, and we saw, you know, we saw James become a lead singer and stuff. Then he finally got into that, you know. But Dave had the attitude. Dave was the one flipping people off. Dave was saying the f bomb all the time. It was, you know, really Mustaine being that uh, the, the, being the front man. Mustaine, and then it was really kind of. <laughs> so I mean, for a guy who was there from the very, very beginning, and it sounds to me like I, I may already know the answer to this question, but. Do you think that lineup with Dave Mustaine out of all the years of Metallica, do you think that was their best lineup? I mean, you were there to see it. A lot of us can speculate, but you were there. What do you think? Um, at, at, uh, on the onset, yeah, but when, the, when, the, when um, Hammett really got into his own, because um, um, Master Puppets is an amazing album, yeah. and the band really, really gelled at that point. So at, at the first part, yeah, it was Mustaine, but when... When Kurt really got to it, you know, learned how to get into the band, everybody started grooving. It was, you know, that lineup when they went to uh, Master the Puppets. That was amazing, you know. It was, and when the, it came out, you know, when it first came out, even before, because, you know, we'd hear the demos and stuff, all the kids going to concerts would say, Master, Master Puppets. It was like, you know, you got something good when and all the fans start, you know, picking up on the lingo and stuff. So. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, then, yeah. unfortunately, it couldn't last, and Megadeth ended up splitting off and doing their own thing. That brings us to your pick, Bill. You're picking off a Killings My Business, the Megadeth debut. Yeah, it has to be Rattlehead. Uh, when I, do, I was doing the, uh, the Megadeth book, I needed inspiration to get your mindset back in that time, and I must have played you know, Rattlehead nonstop for, like, hours, just trying to find the feeling, trying to find the, all that girth and grit and all that stuff that came out with it. What? 
Yeah, killer song, man. That's a rocking one right there. You guys are listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Aaron Camaro, Chris Zinzak with me, joined by Bill Hale. This man is an amazing photographer. He was there at the early days of Metallica and Megadeth, and that's what we're talking about today, spinning some tunes, letting Bill tell some stories. Bill, more insight to the early days of Metallica. People have to understand the San Francisco scene was a big, for all of us, it was a gang, you know. It was like, you know, uh, a band called Vicious Rumors, there's a band called Lost Rocket, there was Exodus, and we're yeah. all just like, you know, brothers in arms kind of thing. It was really kind of cool. Um, and, you know, it was really big news. Like, so uh, when Dave got kicked out, the Whispers and Kirk got in, that was kind of cool. It was good to see, you know, Hammett, you know, because was, he was a really good guitar player. That's just up and coming. But to see him on stage for the first time with, with Metallica, we all kind of felt, and it really, we knew back then, um, Metallica was a San Francisco band. You know, no more L.A. stuff for these guys. And so it was kind of cool. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned that, and um, we, you know, we've interviewed a number of people from the L.A. scene in that era, and they always describe it with, you know, you, it, it was almost like a powder keg. You could feel the electricity. Was it a similar situation in San Francisco with all of the metal bands getting ready to blow up out of there? Not really. It was uh, um, the difference between pretty L.A. and San Francisco. You mm-hmm. move to L.A. to be a star. You're born in San Francisco, <laughs> and it was it was that's what you know. Because you think all the bands before that, you know, the Grateful Dead, uh-huh. and then like Journey, and then like Y and T. All those bands from from that area, and they all grew up there and stuff. So it's like you know, and with all that rich history and culture, it, it's um, you know, it's organic kind of thing. And so you know. Uh, with like, uh, like I said, uh, Lost Rocket and Exodus and Testament and, and uh, all those other bands. And it's natural for these guys to take the guitars. And they had a club scene already because all the older people had the clubs. And then just the media was there, you know, so it was really natural for all this stuff to go on. And it was brothers and I, we were all, you know, at Christmas time, we'd go to certain clubs to make sure he was hanging out and, you know, and you're hanging out to see who's on tour, what kind of stories we told and stuff. It was really kind of cool. And now, Deep Thoughts with Phil and Selmo. You take some Diet Coke and you mix it up with some Nutrisweet and you take it to your friends who wear the Suicidal Tendencies t-shirts and you tell them, hey, you're suicidal, man. What are you, you want to kill yourself or something? And you say, no, 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 no. Man, you know something? People are always coming to me and say, hey, man, you're suicidal. You're suicidal. But I say, I'm lonely. I suppose, I guess, at that time, the biggest difference between L.A. and San Francisco is you got to figure in L.A. in the music scene, you got Quiet Riot, boom, they get signed. All of a sudden, they got big hit songs. Then you got Motley Crue, boom, they get signed, and they're a big, huge band going out on tour around the world. In the San Francisco scene, you had these great bands, but they were more grinding it out. You know, They weren't getting big hits in radio play. They were getting their fans the old-fashioned way of just playing kick-ass shows. And fortunately, Bill, you were there to see a lot of that early good stuff. Yeah, and you're right, because Y&T was before all those bands, and Y&T, like the big California, the only band I know that you can call a California band, they were, you know, they played they played in L.A., they played in San Francisco, everybody who's anybody, like, even like Malacru and uh, Van Halen opened up for Metallica, I mean, uh, opened for uh, Y&T. Yeah, Y&T and, is you know, a good band. they didn't get big until, you know, they, they conformed to the L.A. sound kind of thing, you know, the big hair and like that, and San Francisco people didn't like that whatsoever. I think in the end, Who's still around, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, 
Who's still one of the biggest bands? You know, Metallica's one of the biggest bands on the planet. You know, Megadeth's still grinding away. Exodus is still doing it. Testament has a new album coming out. And so it, the longevity of these bands is incredible. I mean, we're all almost 50, 50 or almost 50, and it's just to do that still. I mean, I know McDane's 50, and he's been on tour for like three years now, nonstop just about. And, you know, he's gone through his pains and aches, but he's still doing it. He looks really good doing it. So, uh, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it a million times. You know, good music is good music, and it stands the test of time. You know, all these years later these bands are still in high demand high demand and it's because of the great music and that's basically what it boils down to when you're talking about great music hey guess what it's my turn to pick a song we're up to uh, 1984 ride the lightning metallica i'm gonna have to agree with you bill on this one i'm gonna go with fight fire with fire
awesome tune. I love that one. Bill, what do you think? When that album came out, there's a magazine called Kerrang! Yeah. And they dedicated this. I mean, usually album reviews are like, you know, half a page or whatever. They uh-huh. dedicated two whole pages, and I think it was Malcolm Dome every single song apart and just glorified it. It was like, wow, okay. And it was <laughs> nice. kind of cool to see everybody else grabbing on to this band called Metallica. I want to go back to with the Metal Rendezvous. Um, during that period of time, th- did the success or the breakout of Metallica and some of those bands, did that really propel Metal Rendezvous forward? Did it give you guys some, some good street cred at the time? This is the dichotomy of uh, the, the whole my whole universe kind of thing. Uh, we, 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 we put Metallica in here and there, but we didn't do a full-on story until like 85, and Lars hated us for it for a long time. <laughs> but, you know, when you're up and coming a metal band, you know, there's like, here comes Accept, you know. You're from L.A., yeah, here comes Wasp or whatever, and then here comes Excited from Canada. You have all these bands coming in, and so you have to prioritize what's going to be on the cover, and you have to think two, three months ahead. Okay, here comes Loudness. I, I took the very first photographs of Loudness, uh, in the United States, they uh-huh. flew in to San Francisco, and I had a buddy at a record store. He wished him over to the record store, and we had a press conference. And so I got that. I did like the very first Europe concert uh, in the States, too, during the final countdown. I was at, you know, Warfield Theater. I got a phone call, Bill, you got to be here. So, you know, there's so many things that we did. And the Metal Line was a metal magazine, it was, just wasn't flash. I mean, we gave the first press to like White Lion. I took the very first color <laughs> photograph to be published of, like, L.A. Guns. Nice. Uh, the very first photograph in Krang of Metallica was mine. So there's somebody first that the magazine did. And, uh, and it was cool to see Lars kind of, like, you know, you see it once in a while, he like, this little Lars stare, like, yeah, and he, we finally gave what he wanted. But uh, <laughs> our, our, our thing was more, we were really global, right. and uh, the whole metal scene in general. And we, we had to do thrash and the heavy metal stuff and the glam stuff all at one time. And okay. Yeah, you were definitely at the right time in the right place for all that. Yeah. Book number three, which is going to be like a heavy metal book, with a, you know, and now like just being in San Francisco area and knowing how much stuff was started there, kind of thing, it was really kind of cool. Like uh, Vinnie Moore, for instance, I was the only photographer to photograph Vinnie Moore in Vicious Rumors, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. You know, I remember when eBay would come through, uh, he'd call the office, and if I was going to be there, he'd let no one else photograph him but me. Nice. That's interesting. See, I told you there was a third book. Bill, what's the name of the book, the third oh, one? Oh, yeah. Uh, right now, it's tentatively called Power Surge. Actually, there's going to be uh, five tentative. or six books. And that's that's going to cover the gamut. Yeah, the whole 80s. And now it's time for the Gene Simmons Lyrical Screw-Up of the Week. Listen to the Decibel Geek Podcast on your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, and WebOS phones with Stitcher. Stitcher's smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. 
All right, Chris, we're up to you and your pick. We're up to 1986 Megadeth Peace Cells. Uh, Peace Cells is a great album, yeah. and um, it's released on Capitol Records '86. And this was when I, this was when Megadeth, in my opinion, was really hitting its stride. Um, they were starting to get a little bit more uh, a little bit more notoriety at that point. They uh, opened for Alice Cooper on the Constrictor tour at that yeah. point, and uh, the the record is great. But I have to go with which is the staple of all of us that grew up in the '80s. It was the intro to MTV News. It's the title track. Yeah. This is P Cells, but who's buying?
Yeah, that's a great tune. I love that one. Everybody knows that song, Peace Sells, but who's buying? Bill, do you concur? Great song? Uh, actually, it's the very first heavy metal single, or brass single. I mean, you know, James had that brilliant stroke, and it was that was really, before Metallica had any kind of, you know, singles in mind, whatever, Dave came out and beat him to the punch, so. I, did, I did, actually didn't know that. That's interesting. That is well, very yeah, cool. Well, yeah, because Metallica's first, you know, didn't have really a single until one. Yeah, I guess that or is true. That, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, the whole, we yeah. won't make a video, and then all of a sudden, here's one. <laughs> See? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah so, and, and Dave, I think he had more of a, you know, savvy to do that. So he knew he had to do stuff like that. Because, you know, he's on Capitol. Um, when I first saw that, uh, they opened from Motorhead. And uh, the long story, I won't get into it, but it was like I was so blown away by that. You know, they were the, the band had gelled so much, mm-hmm. and they came on being so professional on a bigger stage than they ever played, kind of thing. And it didn't blew doors off. It was crazy. Yeah, good times, good music back then. We're talking to Bill Hale today on the Decibel Geek podcast. Uh, Bill's come out with a ton of great books. He's got Metallica Club Days, you know, and this is a look inside the early early days of Metallica and of course Megadeth to his latest book another time a different place you guys want to check that out um I was going to ask you uh now these these books focus on the earliest days of both bands now did you was your relationship with these bands mostly in the early days and did it get cut off at a point or are you still in contact with these guys um I was hanging out with uh Mega and Metallica until like 1999. I would see my gigs and stuff. I, um, at uh, 1989, I decided to, I needed to, um, to stop a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was there, you know, every day, every other week, you know, flying around here and there. And it's cool and all, but you get to a point where you need to, you want to have a life kind of thing. So uh, I moved to LA and I did, I still worked in the business. I photographed bands still, but I wasn't like traveling nonstop anymore. Right. Uh, then I moved back to the Bay area and a, a little bit. Uh, I always saw Hammett. We saw a bunch of gigs together. Uh, saw James at a couple of UFO concerts and stuff. And so, and we still contact through buddies. I have, you know, buddies who are like, Hey man, let's at high or Hey man, James at high. And with Dave, I've always kept in contact with Mustang, you know, mm-hmm. here and there, here and there kind of thing. And then uh, we had two projects we both wanted to do back in 2000. It didn't work out. And then uh, I get an email from him, I guess, just before he started his book, you know, he wanted some photographs for his book. And I ended up doing like 22 photographs for his book, which is kind of cool. And a lot of the early Metallica stuff are in you know, his book. So that's yeah, really we still cool. talk to him there, you know, a lot of emails and like, I've, a lot of friends, and they always talk to these people for me. And uh, I'm not—I'm not super private, but I'm—you mm-hmm. know—I'm kind of in my private phase. I'm raising kids and, mm-hmm. and having some—you know—personal time right now. But uh, I still look at bands. Yeah. There's bands that fly out here, or I have a weekly gig on Sunday with a guy named Henry Capono, and he's like this major uh, Hawaiian superstar kind of thing. And uh, yeah, and you never know who's going to show up at his, when his gigs. I mean, like last week, Mick Fleetwood showed up. Eddie Vedder shows up, you know, oh, you cool. just know, he's nice. that kind of superstar. And a lot of people in the mainland haven't heard of him, uh-huh, but right. you know, all the hit people have, so it's kind of cool. Uh-huh. That is awesome. Um, I was going to check that out. I was going to ask you, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, since you, were, since you were around these guys in the very earliest of days and you saw them before success hit and everything, what was your reaction to all of the therapy stuff in the Some Kind of Monster movie? What did you think when you watched all that? <laughs> Uh, um, personally, I think that's Lars's way of keeping the band in the limelight. It was Lars's uh, idea to do things, and and you know, and it was probably time to stop and reflect a little bit. Uh-huh. I didn't really get into all that. It was I thought it was kind of ironic, and he had a big game of staying in it. And it's like 
no matter what Lars does, Dave's someplace in his conscious. And so I got what? On his 40th birthday, he's driving up to San Francisco to talk to Lars, and they didn't tell Dave that it was going to be recorded oh. kind of thing. And all of a sudden, Dave gets there. He's doing the outtakes. And Dave goes, well, it's his camera's here. You know, and it's like, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's always, it's, wow. Lars was a way of keeping the band in the limelight. And now, I guess the last five, six years, the band, the band does itself now, finally. But it's always Lars trying to do something to keep the band, you know, when they cut the hair and did all that alternative stuff, that mm-hmm. was Lars trying to, you know, keep the band valid. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you kind of look at it at that time, you know, how popular reality TV was and continues to be. You know, maybe that was Metallica's way of making their own reality show without actually having to shop it out to networks or not. They just put it out on DVD, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's the know, Metallica it's, reality Lars show. Been wanting the film kind of thing too, so it's kind of when the first forays into a, a movie kind of thing. So, yeah. but it's all Lars. I mean, he's amazing. Um, you know, for a long time, people didn't really understand Lars, but I think now, in retrospect, I mean, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all the stuff, their own festival. And I think people will start really understanding what Lars is about. You know, he's just not he's, he's not the typical drummer, that's for sure, right? I oh mean, yeah. I mean, there's tons of dumb go both my way, but Lars always has this uh, thing. He always has the right drum parts. He always has some great drum sounds, but he's yeah. not a drummer, really. He's, he's a rock star. Hi, Lars. Because <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll get this email from somebody on Lars Fringo, hey, man. Uh, you know, and it's, it's funny because Lars and I had this relationship where I didn't for a long time want to deal with certain things, you know, because I didn't have to because you know, as we all progressed, we all got famous or whatever, you know, and I'm on stage with White Snake and 75,000 people. I'm over here with Scorpions or whatever. And, you know, Lars and I had this kind of not relationship for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had to do books that talked about Lars all the time. And, you know, I discovered or rediscovered who he is because he really is like this amazing rock and roll impresario or whatever, right? Right. He just knows what to do, and you know. All right, Bill, well, that brings it up to your turn to pick a song. We're having a good time playing DJ today. Bill, your turn. You're going to pick something off of Master of Puppets. Master of Puppets, huh? Yeah. Battery, right? Yeah, why not? Battery's a rocking tune, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's do Battery, Metallica, Master of Puppets from 1986.
Man, that's a great tune. I love that one. Oh, yeah. I never get tired of Battery. That was, no. Uh, just love. a heavy, rocking tune, man. Love it. And we were talking about uh, the Some Kind of Monster movie just a minute ago. And uh, w- one of my favorite scenes <laughs> from that, though, is when they're working out Robert Trujillo and uh, trying to get him auditioned up and everything. And uh, he suggested they play Battery. And they're like, you're going to play that with your fingers? And he's like, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that guy is just an amazing <laughs> bass player. When we did our, our top favorite bass players, Robert Trujillo was one of my very top yeah, picks. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Bill, any thoughts uh-huh. on uh, Robert Trujillo? You know, he came in after, and so uh, I think he's a great guy. I haven't met him, but no. what I've seen of him. What he did to Metallica, he brought this physical aspect to the band, yeah. which you made know. James be more physical. I mean, if you notice the early videos when, Jay, uh, when uh, Robert's in the band, mm-hmm. you know, from 80, uh, from 2008 and stuff, you watch, you know, everybody had to get in shape because Robert's in great shape, and Robert's younger than, kind of younger than these guys. And yeah. The interaction and what he does, he really makes James do a lot more work, which is kind of cool. Look at Because James really gone through a renaissance again. I think the whole band has, mm-hmm. but James really has come to terms with who he is and what his past was and, you know, all that stuff. And he looks great. I mean, I always watch the YouTube clips of their meet and greets because it's just amazing how these fans from all around the world come up to James and, like, you know, like the typical thing, like, oh, I love you. You did this for me. You rescued me or whatever. And James takes it in so graciously, which is so cool because mm-hmm. I remember the stories when he was a kid, he'd write to Aerosmith or whatever, and they would never write back. And then, you know, 70s rock stars weren't this conducive or open, you know? And so, uh, and James really appreciates all this stuff, which is really kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, yeah, he always, he seems to be, I don't know, I'm not saying, not that Lars isn't fan friendly, but James almost has more of that one on one connection. And Lars almost, like you said, Lars is more of the rock star. James seems to be more of the guy that just wants to drink a beer and play guitar, you know? Yeah, uh, Cliff really brought that to the band. Cliff really. Said, okay, this is our fans. These are our people. Cliff was the one who started all the fan interaction. And when he when he went away, and then uh, Jason got the band. Jason, uh, that was Jason's gig before the show, after the show, meet and greet like that. And just later on, then they understood because they all knew how big fans are. Because you, you're nothing without the fans, right? Right. I mean, really, seriously, and they really understand this. And so, and now you know, James is really because. Before any Metallica gig, they had the meet and greet, the Metallica fan club. And everybody would take the time and autograph all the autographs and take the pictures of everybody, which was really kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Aerosmith would never do that, you know. Well, Bill, you know, you were there from the very beginning. Your books are evident of that. You know, and this is this is a story that's been told a million times. But I want to know, you know, because you were pretty, you know, in tight with both of these bands, Metallica and Megadeth. You know, I got to ask, when, how, how close were you to the situation when Dave Mustaine was fired from Metallica? I don't think, and nobody knew it except for Lars. <laughs> and, and then he latched on to James, uh, to Peace Miller, because it was all of a sudden out of the blue. Like I said, we all drank, we all got in trouble. Mm-hmm. Lars got in trouble too, as much as Dave got in trouble. Just Dave, um, I think Lars saw the band slipping away a little bit. With Cliff and the band, all of a sudden you had these two monster players, and then he's just the drummer. And you know, Cliff brings all these ideas, and Dave can play with him and stuff. Uh, but in retrospect, you know, I saw Hambit hanging out a little bit, a little bit too much, a little bit kind of thing. But, you know, hmm. that's maybe in retrospect. So I think um, like a political then, move, huh? Uh, you know, at the gigs or whatever, is a p- photograph of me in the front row, head banging with Ron Quintana kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, no one talked about it because it was one of those things where uh, it was like they like to make this pact kind of thing. When it first happened, no one's supposed to talk about it. Dave's gone, Kurt's in, we don't talk about it. Okay, that's it. But later on in life, as, uh, you know, all the secrets come out, um, James mentioned in an interview a couple years ago, like, yeah, we're, we're listening to demo tapes, driving to New York, thinking about, we well, should get rid of Dave. 
you know, mm-hmm. that's a, all of a sudden, oh, they're thinking about before this already, you know? Yeah. And so cause they played a gig in uh, New York with Dave, and then uh, they fired him like a day later or whatever. Wow. You know? It was, it was uh, a, a lost thing, you know, because I remember hanging out. Here's a story no one's heard yet. Okay. Um, I was hanging out uh, on the second show with uh, Metallica. McGovern's still in the band. Hi, Ron. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting with Cliff and everybody's kind of, you know, drinking or whatever. And Lars comes over and like, tell, tell Rob, we're getting rid of him. We'll get back to LA. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, he's right there. What are you talking about? So just knowing that about Lars, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't too far away. Besides, Lars is uh, rock star is Richie Blackmore. What is Richie Blackmore Donald's career, you know? Yeah. And so when you, when you emulate your rock stars, it was easy to... Richie Blackmore, man, what happened with him? He's like doing Renaissance Festival music and stuff now. Yeah. But he's doing it amazing, though. Uh, yeah. I saw a clip the other day from uh, the new DVD coming out, and he still has it. I mean, he's playing uh, whatever, a lute or whatever, but he's like all over the place. I'm like, woo. Okay. No, but I just, I, I, I so badly want, I want to hear the Deep Purple Rainbow stuff. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Time, time for a wicked lute solo. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many times you guys see, you know, Blackmore. I've seen him like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh-huh. And this man has those fingers still, and he's still doing this stuff. Even though he's in, yeah, Renaissance costume with his wife yeah, singing right. in the front, but he just does it all <laughs> up down. It's crazy. Oh, I'm sure he still has it. I just, I just wish he would use it for the rock. Yeah, stuff use it for rock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think everybody in, in the in the rock world wants Richie to do some more rock right now, and I think Richie's kind of happy where he's at. I mean, I can't speak for him, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, just through the press and what he's done and stuff. Yeah. And he's been doing it now for 10 years or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. I saw the very last Rainbow Tour with Doogie White. And, and I saw in, his, in Richie's face that he was almost done with this. You know, he's going through the motions and, you know, and he's at a small club and, you know, it's black when playing a small club. So it's like, <laughs> okay. Here's what I like to listen to. And it's my final pick on the show tonight. We're having fun hanging out with Bill Hale. Um, it's down to me. It's uh, 1988. So far, so good. So what? I'm going with hook in mouth.
Hi, I'm Axel Rose's Alarm Clock, and the reason the band is late tonight is because I'm busy listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. And I, you know, a lot of people, you know, everybody talks about the, the Metallica stuff from the 80s, but man, Me- Megadeth was right there on par with them. Absolutely. You know, I just, yeah, yeah I, I, they were, in my opinion, they were all, musically, they were always neck and neck, and sometimes Dave even won out, in my opinion. Yeah, I can yeah. agree with that. I mean, it's hard to pick between two <laughs> bands like that, Metallica and Megadeth. They're both so good. And that's what I like about today. We're focusing on the early stuff, which is, by both bands, my favorite. Uh, if I could add a little thing to it, it's always been two against one, right? It's always been Dave against, against Lars and James. Yeah. It's always yeah. been two against one, and you know, Dave's been you know neck and neck kind of thing. So it's kind of cool. I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was Dave and Nick Menza against Lars and James, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, in the long run, because you know it was just it's Dave's band. Oh yeah, Lars right. And, yeah, yeah, two against one. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna bring up and not to be on a downer note, but you uh, dedicated the new book to uh, Gar Samuelson. What can you? What are your memories of Gar? Uh, I, I think I wrote it. And he's like your cousin. The older cousin always give you a wedgie. Because um, <laughs> uh, uh, he, you know, I, I wasn't ever too sure about him. He's always a nice guy, but he yeah, always that little that little mistrust to him, that little deviant to him. And uh, um, he was just gay. And doing the book, the more I saw him, the more like, wow, he really, I don't know if he set the role for anybody. I don't know how much influence he had. I know, I know that lineup. The first one I was still revered as this golden era, but he really anchored it and stuff. And just thinking about him, because like, what I have to do, I scan the negatives into my computer, do the Photoshop, so I see these images for like up to six hours a day, so all these things come, you know, and just, it was bar, man, and I've known him a long time, so uh, mm-hmm. he, was, he was a good guy. That's awesome. And uh, and Dave uh, wrote the foreword for the new book. And uh, how did that process go about? Did he just send that to you, or, or did you actually get to have a good conversation with him about this? Um, we emailed back and forth because he needed, like I said, uh, his book it was coming up and he needed photographs. And he knew, he knew I had all the photographs. Mm-hmm. And then I told him, the only thing I'm going to do this if you do my foreword. He said, fine. Nice. <laughs> and, and, um, and then reading the foreword, the first time, I oh, yeah, that's cool. But then I read it again and I look at the photographs. You know, and Dave, you look, every time I point a camera, he's looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, he's had this, he's reluctantly letting me do my job. Uh-huh. And, and in the forward, he says this, that he wished he would let more people have done that. Because there's not very many photographs of him in the early days. It's just mine and, you know, Harold's and uh, Brian's. But uh, yeah. it's tough when you're a kid, you know, we're coming up and you have all these issues. You don't know how to deal with them. And, and photographers isn't his thing, so... Well, yeah. Can you imagine being a guy like you know Dave Mustaine in those days, and they're you know getting photographed by the same guys that are taking pictures of like Winger and Poison and bands like that, and they're saying, "All right, Dave, now you know you need to pout your lips a little bit more." <laughs> you know, Dave Mustaine's not going to do that. You no. know, so I would imagine most photographers just didn't get them the way you were doing yeah. it, and the way you were doing it was just catching them naturally, and that's about the best way to do it, I would think. So yeah, it was, kudos it was a trust you. factor. He he knew us for a he knew me a long time, Rob. Familiar face. He knew I wasn't doing anything silly. Or, he knew that I was going to get photographs that rocked, and yeah. you know, and it, it turned out that way. Yeah, it's interesting. He Aaron mentions the uh, whole wing, the same people shooting winger and stuff. It always it was interesting to me that uh, it was a photo of of Dave Mustaine that was used on the cover of the Decline Part Two movie. Uh, you know, because Megadeth was such a small part of that film, and ninety percent of that movie was about all the hair bands wearing the makeup right. and stuff. And uh, it's just funny because if you looked at the at the 
top at the cover of it, you know, sight unseen, you would think, oh, this is a movie about thrash metal. Thrash metal. Yeah, you're right. I never really thought and about it's such, that. But it's yeah. such a small part of the film. But did, what was your reaction to that movie when it came out? Uh, kind of in shock and horror. Uh, <laughs> I knew most everybody in the, in, the, in, the, in the movie. I knew everybody. And like, you know, um, the guy from Chris from Wasp is like, dude, what are you doing? And, you yeah. know, and uh, Penelope caught these people at their worst, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only person who came out really was Gene Simmons came out amazing, right? Yeah, he was just... All Stanley and Giffy, yeah. you know, and uh, Ozzy, buffoon, sorry, Oz. Love but, you know, he's, he's making breakfast, cracking the eggs, the eggs are going on the stove and stuff. And it's like, yeah. you know, and Lemmy even, you know, she got Lemmy at that time. It's like, we all know alcohol is a disease. It, it doesn't come on because you're on the road and there's a bottle of whiskey there. You, you're either going to drink it or not, you know. And he mm-hmm. kind of tended to that, well, you know, that's why I'm an alcoholic because, you know, the bottles are there. But, you know, and the, the worst one was Chris. I felt bad for him. It was like, I felt really bad for him. Yeah. And you know, the scene in the pool, Danny, uh, vodka and his uh, yeah. mom there just shaking his head. Right. And all the other kids. I mean, I knew both of those guys because I, you know, I photographed the LA scene too, and it was like, God, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's interesting hearing somebody that knew the people because I watched it as like a twelve-year-old kid, you know, thinking, in, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, going, "Wow, you know." It, you know it's crazy out there in Los Angeles and stuff yeah. and, and you know of course when you're 12 you buy into all the stuff and of course I'm thinking you know Paul really Paul Stanley really does have you know four chicks in his bed every <laughs> night and he, and he really does sleep in his costume that he wears on stage you know <laughs> so it's like it's interesting when you, the perspective changes as you get older and then you know realizing man Ozzy looks like Shelley Winters in that movie you know it's yeah. just it's just yeah. it's bizarre well it's the old perception yeah. is reality and it's purest <laughs> And then if you know Penelope, right, she did uh, Winged World. Yeah. Know? So yeah. you're thinking, you know, not too far off the mark. <laughs> yeah, they were both comedies. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. the, the very first decline was like hardcore uh, L.A. Punk. punk. It was mm-hmm. totally, totally different. And yeah. there's a third movie no one's ever seen. And so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, there is. There's a third. Yeah. Well, there's a. Yeah. He did one on the. Like, you know it's out there. Yeah, I think it's about like the new metal stuff oh, that's out now something like that like no wonder yeah. i haven't seen yeah. it well yeah but, um, <laughs> all right well bill i want to thank you for coming on with us and um best place to get the uh, books would be amazon would, would you say so yeah but amazon they have great discounts uh um actually walmart has it for a dollar cheaper but amazon you know they have the great shipping you can buy a bunch of books and give you uh, free shipping and stuff amazon's kind of cool man and i'm looking at your at the uh, i'm looking at the page right now for the megadeth another time a different place book and it's it's kind of funny because on it's got the uh, discounted price listed from 1995 down to 1329 and then it says you save 666 Nice. You pla- <laughs> Bill, did you plan that out? You planned it that way, didn't you? Just the publisher in Amazon. I have to say that and do a screenshot. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, I'll do a screenshot of it. It doesn't get any more metal when you go shopping than nice. that, folks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Save yourself 666. <laughs> That's wild. And, of course, Metallica Club Days, 82 to 84, Bill's book. You know, if you are a Metallica fan, if you are a true Metallica fan, this book is pretty much a must-have for you. You know, it's a lot of pictures that you've never seen anywhere else before. You know, uh, it's an insight into the early days of Metallica in the band's infancy. You know, and it's a it's an amazing book. You gotta have, and it. you can't have one without the other. So go ahead and buy exactly. both. Exactly. Yeah, save yourself some money on shipping. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on, and we will definitely uh, want to have you back on the show again in the future if you're up for it. Thank you, Bill. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. It was great, man. It was cool. I had a lot of fun. Remember to check us out at dbgeekshow.blogspot.com, facebook.com/decibelgeek, and Twitter 
at Decibel Geek Pod. Also available for free on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. 